Hey, thanks for checking out the Airborne Youth Podcast. This week you'll be hearing a teaching from our guest speaker. Guys, I feel like I, I could spend the rest of the night telling you about all of uh, Chris's exploits and qualifications. Uh, do you guys know Chris Dupre? Anybody know him? Yeah. Guys, he is a, he is a living legend. And... If I told you all the things that he's done in his life, do you guys ever see Forrest Gump? How he's always in the middle of some, like, big thing that happened? That's Chris. Um, he's all through church history. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I can do that. You know why? Because uh, Chris is the Life Center comedian. I don't know if it'll be funny tonight, but listen, open your hearts. I don't know if he's on tonight. No. Uh, he's going he's gonna to tell his story. He has the most profound story. So this isn't like preaching church. This is the best storyteller, one of the best storytellers I've ever seen in my life. Chris, bring it. Make some noise. Whoa. Yeah, okay, please. Quiet. Okay, thank you. said I've got five minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> no, you don't have to worry. You can put them there. If I walk, if I trip myself on you, it's, it's my fault. It's not like you're six foot ten. You will be? That's awesome. That's, well, keep praying. <laughs> just pray. God does miracles. Uh, good to have you all. Where are the two new ones here? Who are the newbies? Okay, you two guys. Hi, and who else? Hi, good to have you all. I'm new too, but <coughs> I've been new for a long, long, long time. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he asked me to tell you about my story. And so when you, w- when you go to tell a story um, about yourself, it, it's, it's kind of self-serving in that here's my life. Let's see if my life makes a difference for you. I don't know if it does or not. Um, I w- where's Murr? Where is she? Where'd she go? Ow. Okay, the one that's, that's crying over here because she got, just got hit. Yes. Great job tonight. Yes. Can I just say, I've, I've been in music for a little bit over the years, and I, I would not sing in front of people even though I started playing guitar when I was about 15, 16, uh, 16 and, but I wouldn't sing in front of people until I was 19 or 20 because I was too scared. So if somebody wanted to hear a song I'd written, I would go into the bathroom and close the door. And if they wanted to hear it, they had to come stand outside the bathroom door. I know, it's pathetic, isn't it? And so now I, I'm, I'm over that. I let people in the bathroom with me now. It's, uh, it's, I can only get about six or seven in there, but, you know. <laughs> so, anyway, I want to commend that. Was that your first time up in front here? That's really amazing. Yeah. You got a beautiful voice, and it sounded great. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, World War II. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. How many of you went through World War II? Five of you. Excellent. You didn't go through World War II. My father went through World War II. 
And this is kind of where my story starts. My father was one of, there was an older sister, but there were four brothers. And at one time, my grandmother had a three-year-old, a two-year-old, a one-year-old, and a newborn. Yeah, I know it. Poor lady. (coughs) And my father was the second of the guys, and they were as close as close could be. They just grew up. One went into the war. The next one got old enough to go into the war. The next one got old enough. And all four of them ended up in World War II. Um, (coughs) And... If you know anything about World War II, uh, I, I used to teach seventh grade, seventh and eighth grade. And so in the beginning of the year, I would ask them questions about history. I'd say, when was the Civil War? And I'd get answers like 1950 to 1956. So, okay, interesting. Um, name a country in Europe. And some would go, Japan. So they weren't really good on on dates, and they weren't really good on geography. Um, I was. Why would I be? Because my dad became a history teacher. And so he would drill me about countries and dates and everything before I even got to kindergarten. As a matter of fact, when I was four, that's true. uh, Yeah, yeah. Like, when's the War of 1812? No, it's... (laughs) But I knew all the dates and, and, and everything by the time I got to kindergarten. Matter of fact, when I was four years old, he taught me the presidency of the United States so that I would enter kindergarten being able to recite the presidency of the United States. Wowzers. That was a long time ago, and I think Eisenhower was the president. What, yeah, yeah. But it was Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Adams, Jackson, Van Buren, Harrison, Tyler, Polk, Taylor, Fillmore, Pierce, Buchanan, Lincoln, Johnson, Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland, Harrison, Cleveland, McKinley, Roosevelt, Taft, Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump. There you go. Wowzers. Now, ask me how I learned that. I have no idea. I was four years old. I don't remember learning it. I've just always known it. And so... (laughs) And so when I see these documentaries on, you know, World War II in color, I just start watching them because I'm fascinated by history. I love history. If you don't like history, find a character in history and then study them, and suddenly you'll love history because history is just about a bunch of characters over the years. That's really all it is. And so for me, my dad was in World War II. Now, that said, he was afraid of heights, so he joined the Air Force. He used to think, why would you do that? Why, why not get in a submarine and go down? But he joined the Air Force. And so he became what's called a bombardier. Now, guess what a bombardier does? What? Drops bombs. Say it again. It drops bombs. That's what his job was to drop bombs. And so he was in this B-17. Now, i got to tell you what the B-17 was like. The front of the plane... Um, had the two pilots that sat up in the top, and below the pilots was this, is that me? Below the pilots was this circular, curvy thing made out of plexiglass, and it was clear. And my father would sit right there, and he was this far away from it, and he would see everything in front of him. So imagine being scared of heights, and when the plane takes off, you're this far away from a clear plexiglass, watching yourself leave the ground. I'll just tell you that, I won't tell you, no, I won't tell you anything. 
there were some things that happened in the plane. Never mind. <laughs> that had to be cleaned up later. So anyway, because <laughs> he was scared. And, and so I, he, he would mission after mission. You, you wanted to do 25 missions because if you got to 25 missions, they took you out and they sent you around to, to do something else instead of going up. His job was to go from England across the English Channel into France and Germany and to bomb the enemy. And that's what he did, mission after mission after mission, until he got to his 13th mission. And as 13th mission, um, things changed. And they crossed over into Germany. They're on their way to Berlin to bomb Hitler because they found out he was there and, and he was entrenched and Hitler was entrenched. Everybody knows Hitler, right? Okay. So he, he crosses from France over to Germany and suddenly they start shooting all the planes. And he was watching planes near him explode and watching and hearing guys and looking out the plane and watching guys fall without parachutes. And they were screaming, some were on fire, some planes were on fire, and he was 19 years old. He might have been, no, he, he had just turned 20, so he was 20 years old, young guy. Um, and suddenly his plane is hit, and one engine goes, and then another engine goes. Now, a B-17 has four engines. Does anybody know where they put the engines? Where? Just shout it out. On the wings. Does anybody know where they put the fuel for the plane? In the wings. So when an engine goes on fire on the wing, what's inside the wing? The fuel. Oh. <laughs> You're connecting the dots. So what happens when the fire hits the fuel? Boom. So the pilot tells my father, my father was the second in command on the plane. The pilot tells my father, get everybody out. It's time to go. The engines are on fire. The plane's going to explode. Hurry up, get them out. He goes back. There's two gunners on the side. They're called the waist gunners. There's a guy way in the tail called the tail gunner. And then there's a guy underneath the plane. And it, what's an under, underneath it was a plexiglass round, half round thing called the turret. And there's a turret gunner. Have everybody seen Star Wars? Remember when the Wookiee was in the turret and he's shooting everybody? Okay, that's, <laughs> see, you, until I say Star Wars, nobody knows what a turret is. But he's under, there's this guy under there, and they always had a little guy because there wasn't much room. But the little guy was my dad's best friend. So he's in the turret, and he needed help getting up. So my dad comes over during, during this time, and he sees his hand is up like this, so he starts pulling on him, and the guy is dead. And he looks down, and he's pulling on him. He can't figure out why, and he looks down, and his head had been almost completely cut off. My father gets sick. He goes over to the plane. He's going to go jump out, and he sees that the, the left waist gunner, had the plane had gone like this. The, it, he hit his head on the ceiling. He fell to the ground. He was unconscious. So my dad put his, the guy's parachute was already on. He did, my dad picked him up. He tried to wake him, but he wouldn't, wouldn't wake up. So he picked him up, held on to the ripcord, and threw him out the window. And then his parachute opened up, and the guy lived. Yeah, but he was very appreciative of my father. I would see him a few times during when I was growing up, and every time he'd come up to me, here, stand up a second. He would just kiss me on the lip. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> don't, don't try that. <laughs> He'd come up to me and go, your daddy saved my life. And that was cute when I was four. And then I'm 12. He goes, your daddy saved my life. And then I'm about 18. He starts coming towards me. Don't, don't. I know. My dad saved your life. (laughs) So he he was very appreciative. And now my dad's he 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 runs and jumps and puts on a his parachute, which is just if you can think of a real old old parachute, it's just got four holes, two for the hands, two for the legs. You go through it and you tie it and boom, you're off. And um he goes to jump out of the plane, and he gets scared. He doesn't want to jump out because he's jumping out of a plane at 20,000 feet. That's not the thing. He's never done it, you know. Uh, and so he gets to the edge, and he goes to jump out, and he stops. The second he stopped, this piece of shrapnel from one of the bombs went right by his head, took off the, the leather cap, and stuck it to the side of the plane. Now, had my father gone to the edge of the window, it would have gone through his head, instead of stopping, and it went through that way. So he was, he was saved once. And then the pilot says, jump. So my dad now is, is like, he's got to do it, because now the, the flames around the, uh, the engines are really huge. So he jumps out of the plane. Three seconds later, the plane explodes. So he's only been falling for three seconds. The plane explodes. The shock wave from the plane hits my dad like a fist, and he starts going backwards, rolling back over and over and over again until he, he just about goes unconscious. He wakes up and realizes, okay, i got to stay awake. And he, he goes down. And you wait to pull the ripcord because you have got war with, with dozens of planes shooting at each other. Okay? Between 30,000 feet and 5,000 feet, that's where it's all happening. So you don't want to pull the ripcord too soon and just float through the battle. Hi. <laughs> Don't kill me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm on my way down. Leave me alone. I'm a nice guy. <laughs> you, know? so you just don't want to do that. So you just want to go as fast as you can until you get to 1,500 feet. Then you pull a ripcord. Now, the, they know 1,500 feet because every time the plane took off or the plane would come down, the pilot would yell out 1,500. So everybody memorized what 1,500 feet looks like. So when he hit 1,500 feet, my dad pulled a ripcord. He learned a very, very valuable lesson that day. Never, ever, under any circumstances, should you put your parachute on upside down. (laughs) There are two holes for the feet, two holes for the arms. But if you switch them, there's still two holes for the feet and two holes for the arms. Just look at a 1935-1940 parachute, and you'll see a parachute with four holes. And in the the shock and all that was going on, he put it on upside down. So when he did pull the ripcord, his legs went, "Mm." (laughs) and it went so fast that it pulled the muscle from his back. And so now he can barely move his arms, and he's going towards the earth. And those parachutes, unless there was an updraft, you landed between 15 and 30 miles an hour. So if you can imagine his head hitting the ground at 20 miles an hour, he's dead. 
So he's got to right himself. So he starts getting up, but one arm just is not working because of the muscle and uh, uh, muscle but pulled away. So he gets himself and takes the strings, holds on to the strings. He can't steer with both arms because he's holding on to the strings. So he's steering with one arm, trying to, he steers away from trees and he sees a field. This is Germany in January 1945. Okay? It's the middle of winter in Germany and everything is cold. There's a little bit of snow, little little uh, <coughs> things things you can tell from the air. It's it's cold. Imagine being up at five, ten, fifteen thousand feet. How cold it was. So he gets down. And he goes, ah, there's a field. So he starts going towards the field, and he realizes at the last minute that it's a field of corn that had been cut in the fall. So there's ten thousand swords sticking up in the air. I grew up in a farm country. I remember. When, when, when corn was harvested, you cut the corn, and you could cut it from two feet to four feet, and that was it. And then the, the corn would, during the winter, the corn would just harden and freeze, and they were, we would then cut them and use them as swords as kids because we were stupid. <laughs> Back then, kids were much more stupid than they are now. Now you're much more... Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison. There we go. Okay. <laughs> I guess it was all the same. So <laughs> I won't even ask the things that you do that are stupid. Give me that. No, never mind. <laughs> so he, we, he realizes at the last minute, I can't land there because I'm going to be, I, I'm going to be dead. That's just exactly right. Dead. So he pulls over to the side and sees an area where there's no corn. So he goes, oh, good. He comes over to the area where there's no corn. And at the last second, he looks and realizes why there's no corn there. It's because corn does not grow on a boulder. It's a huge boulder, but he couldn't tell until he got to the ground. He gets down there, and now he's like five feet away. So he puts his foot out at the last second and pushes off, and his right leg breaks in nine places. <clears throat> this is not a good day. So... Yeah, you're all experiencing. So he, have you ever heard of the French underground? Anybody ever heard of the French underground? The French underground, they, they were people that would secretly help out people, Americans, British, etc., that they were called the Allies. They'd help the Allies out if they were caught behind enemy lines. They would help them out. They would take them away, get them back to the American forces. So they were our friends. So he was, he was taken by the French underground, so he was very happy. But they looked at him and said, Lieutenant, we are very sorry. We, we hate to tell you this. He goes, what? Well, you know, he says, thank you for saving my life. He goes, well, <laughs> your leg is broken in a lot of places. And they put this little cast on him. It was just a couple boards, and then they tied something around it. And that's it. That's all he had on his leg. So he, he, they go, your leg is going to get gangrene very soon. So you've got three choices. Number one, you get gangrene and die. He goes, that's not a good choice. What's going to be another one? Okay, the second is that we cut your leg off. You don't get gangrene, but you go home without one leg. My dad was actually very attached to his leg. So <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> it was just sitting there waiting to be said. It had to be said. I'm sorry. <laughs> so... Anyway, he said, give me a third option. He says, we take you to the Nazis. They have medication. Maybe they'll give it to you. 
Maybe they won't, but that's the only ones that had the medication is the Nazis. <coughs> he said, take me there. So they took him into town, dropped him off at the local Nazi headquarter in that town, Brandenburg. Uh, it's a, a just, just west of, of Berlin. And they interrogated him, put him in a makeshift hospital that wasn't really a hospital. Um, it was a, a little warehouse that the Americans kept bombing because they thought that that was a warehouse. So they put him in a warehouse that his own Americans bombed. And one bomb landed outside my dad's window, and it was 20 feet away from the window and did not go off. It was a bomb that was about five to seven feet long. I've seen pictures of it. It would have it not just killed my dad. It would have disintegrated my father. There'd be nothing left of him, and it didn't go off. So he was spared by not getting the shrapnel through his head. He jumped out and lived with three seconds out of the plane. Had it been two seconds or less, it the shock would have killed him. But that one second in between saved him. And then the third one is a bomb that lands literally right outside his window where he is, and he doesn't, it doesn't go off. So my dad's supposed to live. But what they do is they give him medication, and the doctor said, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm, here's good news and bad news. He gave him one of those good news and bad news. The good news is your leg's going to be okay. The bad news is it's, it's so okay that we're going to send you to Stalag Luft. Stalag Luft 3, that's where they sent, um, there's a movie years ago called The Great Escape. Yeah, that's where my father went, except it wasn't as, when you see The Great Escape, it almost looks like, you know, everything went pretty easy. It didn't go easy for my dad. My dad was abused. They took rifles and smashed his face in. They beat him, and uh, <coughs> they, they kicked his leg where it was broken. And my dad went through the rest of 1945 till General Patton liberated his camp. When, when he did, my dad came out. But my dad went into the war a pretty decent good guy. My dad came out of the war two people, a decent good guy and a tyrant because of all the pain that he'd gone through. I didn't know the decent guy because I was born nine years later. All I knew was a, a man who was angry. Anything would set him off, and when it set him off, it could, be, it could be a knuckle on the top of a head. It could be the back of a hand. It could be the front of a hand. It could be pick, I could be picked up and thrown against a wall. I could be kicked. I could, he could take belts off. Yes. Okay. Thank you. I've got 30 seconds left. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he just gave me more time. Is that okay? Okay. Um, well, it was going to be 10 minutes. Now I've got a few more. So this is the guy I grew up with. Does, d I, don't, I don't want you to go where I went, but I'm going to ask a question. I don't want you to answer it. Promise me you won't answer it. Okay. Have you ever in your heart said, I hate, and then the, put the name after it? Okay. Don't answer it. <laughs> I hated this man. My mother finally came in and at eight years old saw me flying across the floor and knew that something was going on, took us away, basically saved my life and pulled me out of this wretched hole in this place that I was in. I was scared every day of my life when my father came home. If the door slammed on the car, I was, you know, I was going to get beat. That's just, that was life. I had an older sister. She got a little, a few little slaps and yelled at. My brother was older. He was sick. He spent time in the hospital the first two or three years of his life. And he had a blood disease. It's, he's okay now. But my father ignored him and saw him as weak. 
I was a strong boy, and because of that, I got the brunt of this man's anger. And I remember as a little kid telling my mom, I hate him. He hurts me. She only thought that he hurt me with his words. She didn't see the other stuff. And it was when I was finally released at eight years old, I just remember the first day coming home from school, my mom had chocolate chip cookies baking. And I knew I c- this is a house I'm going to walk in. It's the first day. And I walked in the house. She got up and she hugged me. The cookies are baking. And I knew I was in a safe place. Totally different life in one from one day to the next day. And I was so happy. I, w- I just, it, it, but I still had this man in my life. By law, the legal system kept him in my life on a, on a, on a weekly basis, on a, a, a bi-weekly, on a monthly basis. I had to take vacations every time I did. It was, you know, one thing or the next that, that would set him off, that he, he would get angry, and, and then I would then be the recipient. Until <coughs> finally I got old enough, and I grew up to be six foot one. He stayed at 5'8". <laughs> I became 200 pounds. He became 150 pounds. Uh, I got jumped by five guys once, um, not at five guys, but by five guys. <laughs> they didn't have five guys then, <laughs> uh, but they they thought I was somebody that had done something I wasn't. They had the wrong guy. It didn't matter because they still beat me to a pulp, and so I threw myself into martial arts after that and got very good at it. I was a good athlete to begin with, and then that all came very easy to me. So I was never afraid of my father, and yet I always feared him. I, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it's like I know if you did something toward me, I could demolish you. <laughs> but I'm still scared of him. I was still scared of him. And that went on year after year after year. And then suddenly at 19 years old, I meet the Lord. And the Lord says, so what are you going to do with the, your father? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. If, Lord, if I get someone, I knew, I knew a guy in the mafia. <laughs> I did. I knew a guy, I grew up in Rochester, New York. I knew a guy in the Rochester mafia who killed people. He was a friend of a friend. We had met, and my friend was in the mafia, and his friend was an enforcer. They called him an enforcer. <laughs> he was the guy that would go around and break knees, and then he would send out a contract on somebody. So I, I asked the Lord, Lord, if I put a contract on my father and have someone kill him and I ask you for forgiveness, will you forgive me? I was serious. That's how deep my hate was. And you know what? The Lord said, yeah, I'd forgive you. The problem is <laughs> law enforcement won't forgive you. <laughs> They'll arrest you. They'll put you in jail for the rest of your life probably and you'll have a whole new family. <laughs> and I just decided... I didn't want Bubba as my family. And so, I'm sorry if your name's Bubba, forgive me. But I didn't, I didn't want that. So I said, okay, Lord, what should I do? And I just knew I was supposed to forgive him. So this is what I did. I, got, I bent down. See, I won't do this right now because if I bend down, I can't get back up. But <coughs> there was a day I could. So I bent down on one knee. I, I prayed. I said, Lord, I forgive my father for everything he did. Amen. I stood up. And then a day or two later, somebody mentioned my father and this thing inside went, Ugh. have you ever seen Alien, where that little thing comes out? He just cut, I hate my dad. And I realized that my forgiveness hadn't really stuck. You know, it's like, huh, 
thought I forgave him, so I did it again. I got down. I said, Lord, I forgive my father. Amen. Shortly there, somebody mentioned my dad. I want him dead. You know, so it's like, okay, this isn't working. <laughs> and <coughs> I literally, one day at work, I'll take the one minute to do that. I, I was eating a bologna sandwich, and I was standing there listening to worship music in my living room with my eyes closed, totally awake because I was on my lunch hour. I had about 45 minutes left on my lunch hour, and suddenly I felt a breeze, and I go, wow, why is there a breeze? The windows are closed. I opened my eyes. I was on a hillside. I'm awake. This was not bizarre. I'm not a bizarre kind of, I don't see angels, you know, and, and things, and, and I'm just like, what's going on? Where's my bologna sandwich? <laughs> I really asked that. Where's my bologna sandwich? I was so hungry. I had taken one bite out of my bologna sandwich, and it was like, oh, it's so good. And then it suddenly wasn't there. And then Jesus comes up, and he's literally, well, going, I'm going to cut to the chase. He's sitting next to me, and I realize that he is smiling with this unbelievable smile. And he says, I love you with a wild love. And I corrected him. I said, Jesus, you can't love me with a wild love because wild is not like Paul says, do things decently and in order. He goes, no, I love you with a wild love. And I said, how can that be? And he says, it's because no man can tame my love for you. I go, oh, well, then love me. (laughs) (laughs) And he takes me and puts my head on his chest and holds me. And I just start to weep and weep because no man's hands had ever held me in a way that didn't hurt me. Even my coach in high school, when I said I'm not going out for basketball anymore, he called me into his office and I'm, I'm in 11th grade, and he looked at me and goes, why aren't you going out for basketball? I said, I just got other things that I want to do, I want to accomplish. And he turned around from me, and the next thing I know, he's a 6'5 mammoth man. He takes his hand, and he smacks my face. I fly off the chair into the wall. My head hits the wall, and I'm lying on the ground with this big face, you know, fingerprints all over my, my face. And I'm, I'm going, why would I now ever want to play for you? You'll never be my coach. And I stood up and I, I made excuses for why I had this hand on my face. I said it happened during a rebound during gym class. But I know, I know the guy and I know his, and so I had to forgive him as well. But I, I just, at that moment when Jesus had his hands around me, he's holding me and loving me. And something shifted in my heart toward my father. And the Lord just said, this is all I want you to do. You're to how can I said, how can I love my father? How can I love a man that I've hated? And he said, I'll give you the key to love someone that you don't like. I said, tell me. He said, honor them. How do I honor my father? When it's his birthday, you send him a good card. You send him a gift that shows him that you honor him. When it's Christmas time, you stop by. You make your presence known. His favorite day of the year is July 4th, Independence Day. He fought for independence. You make sure that you you do something that shows that you understand his heart for independence. Okay, I can do that. I don't know where you're at with your lives. And you're going, if there's someone, you know, nowadays, it's it's like I was the one kid in my, literally, I was the one kid in my class that had parents that were separated and divorced. At that time in the 60s, nobody else was. Nowadays, it's a very different world. And kids have to go through all sorts of dynamics with one parent, two parents, three situations, this house, that house, and the other thing. 
And what happens, our hearts become hard. We become angry at people for making decisions that hurt us. And I just want to tell you, you need to love and honor. It says, love your father and mother. It says, honor your father and mother. You don't have to have some warm, fuzzy thing, but find a way in God to honor them. That's love. Even if you don't feel it, it is love, and God will honor it. And he did. And he began to draw my heart towards my father. <clears throat> One day, it was July 4th, 1982. I remember the day I'm driving to my father's house to celebrate July 4th, and the Lord speaks to me in the car. It says, I want you to forgive your father today. I've been a believer now for 82, just uh, nine years. I'm married, I've got kids. And I, and I said, Lord, I, I did forgive my father. He goes, no, face to face. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. I'll do it quietly inside where no one knows. I don't want to go face to face. And the Lord says this, today, forgive your father face to face. So I tell my wife, she goes, what's wrong? She's seeing my face go, she goes, what's wrong? I said, the Lord just spoke to me. What did he say? He told me to forgive my father. He says, you did forgive your father. No, 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 face to face. Now, she knew my dad. So she goes, oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh. And her hand comes over. Lord, I just pray for Chris. I just ask you. To, you know, she knew my dad. So I go out, and I said, Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll forgive him. But there's a, I got 41st cousins. I know they're almost all going to be there. And they're going to have kids there. And so there's going to be about 50, 60, 70 people at my dad's house. So I said, Lord, if he's alone by the, by the garden, I'll do it. But I don't want to do it if everybody's around him. So I get to the house. This is years later. My father's remarried to a beautiful Christian woman. And, and I say, Marion, where's my dad? And she goes, oh, he's, he's out by the garden all alone. <laughs> Darn. Really? And the Lord says, go. And I was like, okay. And I said, go. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Which I knew it meant this. If I wait, someone's going to come, and the chance to do what God wants me to do is going to go away. So I almost run out there, and I get out there to my, by my dad. <clears throat> and we always, you know, we shook from a, from a distance. I would put my arm out so I could be as far away as my father. I would honor him by shaking his hand. But I, I wouldn't get close. I didn't want to get close. I didn't want to hug the man. I didn't want to say words of affection. I just wanted to honor him as a, as, a, as a believer before God. And I could care less about him, but I just want to honor him. So I get there, and I put my hand out. We shake hands. <coughs> and I said, nice garden. He, he loves to talk about his garden. Oh, yeah, look at the tomatoes. I can't believe how the tomatoes are so big. We're going through here, and I said, <coughs> before so I look over and I think someone's going to come over, I said, Dad, can I tell you something? Uh, interrupt you? He goes, yeah, sure. What is it? I said, it's, uh, it's about when I lived with you. Now, there's nothing good about when I lived with him. And so he goes, what? And I'm like, oh, Lord, this is not a good start. So I go, um, and I had... In the car, I was writing down on the side of my brain, writing down all the things I was going to forgive my father for. I forgive you for this day. I forgive you for this whipping. I forgive you for this kicking. I forgive you. And I'm going to go through this list of things I'm going to forgive him for. And when it comes time to th think that, I look over, and they're gone. There's, I literally, in my brain, I see a whiteboard. It's kind of like a little angel took a hose and went, ah, 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 <laughs> and just wiped the whole thing clean. And I'm going, no, no. And, and suddenly... I go, I, I have to say something. 
And as he's standing there, I said, Dad, I just want to tell you, and this is what came out, that I love you and I forgive you for whatever happened. And he says nothing. I'm waiting for him to get mad. Forgive me for what? Forgive me for, uh, or, oh, okay, all right, thanks. But he said nothing. And I'm like, oh. And the Lord says, put your right arm around him. I'm like, no. I don't want to touch him. He, it's going to leave all this right flank exposed. You know? The Lord says, put your arm around him. So I put my arm around him. The second I touched his shoulder, he bent over, and he began to weep uncontrollably. I've never seen my father cry, but this was not crying. This was an uncontrollable Niagara Falls weeping out of the eyes, out of the nose, out of the mouth. Every orifice was oozing liquid, and I'm just like, and he's losing the ability to stand, and he's going, like, and finally, just before, I, I'm just about ready to drop him, and he realizes that, so he takes his left hand, puts it around, grabs my waist, holds on. The second he put his hand on my waist, I went, and I started crying. And so there's the two of us with our butts hanging out, <laughs> going up and down, crying like absolute babies, nonstop. Both of us are a mess. And for two or three minutes goes by. It doesn't sound like a long time. But when you're crying uncontrollably in the backyard where other people are having picnics <coughs> and it's all coming out, you just and so we get all done and we kind of wipe ourselves clean and he doesn't say anything. He just finally we're holding each other and he goes, well, I better go in. And then he goes into the house. And I'm standing out there just wiping everything off like this. And I turn around. There's my wife on the patio like, did anything happen? <laughs> you know, she missed the whole thing. No one saw anything except a stepbrother inside the house who told me this years later. He said, your father walked in the house. And I said, Dave, I saw what happened out there with Chris. He goes, you saw that? I said, yeah. He goes, what happened? And my father started crying. He goes, I think I have my son back. And that night, when it same, came time to say goodnight, I didn't even think about shaking his hand. I don't, I'm a hugger. And so I just went in and gave him a hug. Didn't think about it. Never hugged him before. I just hugged him. And he goes, whoa. <laughs> I said, sorry, Dad. He goes, no, no, let's bring it in. <laughs> so I brought it in again. I gave him a hug. And he goes, let's do this every time. I said, okay. Yeah. Next time I came to the house, pulled into the driveway, the door is creaking open like this, really slowly. And he walks out the door like this. <laughs> so I jumped out of the door and goes, I'll get the kids. You just go give your dad a hug. So I give him a hug. And, and that was awesome. And then shortly thereafter, I am invited to help out this ministry with worship. Well, I go there, and while I'm there, everybody is kissing each other. They introduce me to Brian. Hi, I'm Brian. And he gives me a kiss on the cheek. I'm going, I, I don't do this. I, you know, I kiss my wife. I kiss my kids. I kiss my mother. I kiss my grandmother. My grandmother would always walk by. She's really tiny. And she just put her head down like this because she wanted me to kiss the top of her head. She lived till 99. She got saved when she was 82. And then for the next 17 years, had visions of Jesus' face. Is that cool? So, yeah, I know. It's awesome. They're never too old. Keep praying. Keep praying. So I'm there. <clears throat> and suddenly I come back from this trip. I've been kissing now for four or five days. I'm a kissing bandit. 
and I greet my father, and he goes to greet me, and I give him a kiss on the cheek. He goes, whoa, wait a minute. I said, sorry, Dad, I've been kissing, and I've been at a conference. Everybody kisses at this guy. He was Catholic. I said it was a Catholic charismatic, charismatic community, and he goes, oh, Catholic community, and they were kissing, huh? Well, let's, let's add this, this to the hug. I said, okay, we'll, we'll now hug and kiss, and we did that for the next three, four, five, six, seven, eight years. He became my best friend. They found something on an x-ray, and they had to take him into the surgery. And so I came down uh, for surgery, and his wife, Marion, is standing at the edge, at the end of the, of, uh, the stretcher. I'm over on the side, and got those rails that are up. And they said, say goodbye to Mr. Dupre. So Marion leans over and gives him a kiss. But she doesn't move, so I can't quite get in there. I didn't want to say, excuse me, Marion, move your butt, please. <laughs> so <laughs> it was too tender of a moment. You know, let's find out what's wrong with my dad. So I, I lean over, and... And be, all the doctors are there. There's like four doctors right there and a couple of nurses. So I just, I thought I'd be cool, which is just, when you think you just have to be cool, don't. Just be you. And I lean over the rail and I go, I put my hand out like this. I go, love you, Dad. I even, I lowered my voice. <laughs> love you, Dad. <laughs> and he's holding his hand like this. And he looks at the doctor and he goes, we don't do this. And I'm going, oh, no, I know what we do. We hug and kiss. And he leans over, and he was like an ox. He takes my belt, pulls me into the stretcher. <laughs> I'm now literally, I've got one toe on the ground. The rest of me is hanging on that one-inch steel thing going into my ribs. And he takes my face and starts kissing my cheeks, turns my head to the doctor and goes, this is my son. I love him. He's great. I'm like, oh, God, you're so good. This is so good. And then he starts to put me down. He goes, no, that's not enough. I need another kiss. This time he grabs my cheeks. Now, when you grab your cheeks, there's not a lot to kiss. And I know a lip kiss is coming. Sure enough, boom. And I didn't care. And he starts, they take the stretcher. They go about 10 feet and he turns around and goes, stop. He goes, what's wrong, Mr. Dupre? Turn the stretcher around. I can't see my son. So they turn the stretch around, and he's going backwards. He goes, love you. And I go, I love you. He goes, no, 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 I love you more. I said, no, 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 I love you more. He goes, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> he takes out his heart. He throws it at me, and I grab it, and I throw it into my chest. And I take out my heart. <laughs> and I throw it at him. And he pretends I shot a bad shot, and he goes, oh. He pulls it into his chest. They get to the elevator. <coughs> elevator door starts to open. He goes, wait. He starts shooting love bullets at me. And this is long before the Matrix, and I start going like this. And I start shooting at him, and he's flailing all in his, in his stretcher. <coughs> We're just going back and forth. And they pull him into the elevator. And by this time, I'm crying the nurses are crying, and one of the nurses next to me goes, this is so beautiful. <laughs> Has it always been like this? I, no, no, it hasn't, but it is now, and I'm happy. And as the elevator door starts to close, he, he goes and moves with the elevator and goes, I love you. And the elevator door closes. And that's the last time I saw my dad. He died on the table. but I have a kissing, hugging, I love you, you're great, you're my son, 
I want to kiss. I want you to know more than anything else. I think he knew something was coming. And I think he said to himself, I'm going to give it one more shot. I'm going to tell my son how I feel about him. And he did, and he was over the top. But I just want to tell you this. You have a father, a real heavenly father, that wants to lavish his affection on you. I don't care what your background is, but my prayer for you is that whatever your situation is, God will convince you how deeply you are loved by him. I was fortunate enough to have a relationship restored and then to see my father's face. But God wants to reveal his face. Do me a favor, close your eyes a second. Just put your hands on your eyes for a second. Lord, I just thank you for each one here. I ask that you would come like you did in my life. You gave me an image of Jesus face to face. That'll never go away. I know your smiling face. And then you went further and you gave me an image of a father who was proud of me and loved me and couldn't tell me enough how deeply he loved me. I ask for eyes to see the smiling, wild love of God and that you would go to each one because a father knows how different their children are. And so I ask you to go to each one and convince their hearts how deeply they're loved. Just set your hand on your heart for a second. And Lord, fill each heart. Fill each heart with the truth. Not the lies that are out there that says he forgets about me, that he likes somebody more than me. Why did this happen to me? Lord, all the questions that remove from our hearts the deep knowing of a God who loves us. Let it go deep within these hearts and let their eyes see your face in Jesus' name. Isn't God amazing? You know, every um, every testimony you hear is really is just an invitation for God to do it in your life. You know, and I don't know that it'll be the exact same way, but. I feel like it's not just that God loves you. It's, guys, it's for you to realize the potential of how much God can restore in your lives. He doesn't just want to save you to get you to heaven, but he's going to use your life, your, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, everybody around you to paint a picture, to make something beautiful in the earth that looks something like it looked in Chris's life. And I feel like what the Holy Spirit's been doing with us is that it's not just about an outpouring of the Spirit, guys. It's about restoring our relationship with our parents. And I feel like what God wants to arm you with is, like, like Chris said tonight, that you're convinced that they're worthy of honor. And that if you honor, God can do something magnificent 
in your lives. So if you have some, something in your life that's broken, grab a hold of this story. I'm telling you, God wants to work miracles. God wants to heal. He wants to restore. And the only reason he had Chris come down here and tell this tonight is so he can do something like this in your life. So I got to tell you, I am really excited for the next three years and what God's going to do between students and parents in this house. I think what God wants is what Chris had with his father, where your, your parents are hugging and kissing you and you feel the same way about them. If you guys were here a couple weeks ago, I told my story, which was similar, where I, I, I fell in love with my dad, not because he was perfect, but because he was my dad. This podcast was recorded live at our Wednesday Night Youth Meeting. To find out more, check us out on Facebook and Instagram by searching Airborne Youth.